The house is much the same shape as the houses the Minutemen lived in, but the door leads to a different way of life. Here, light, heat, and energy to help with the housework come in by wire. All in a man's lifetime, electric power has changed the world. But what about the world that Fred Wilson's granddaughter will see? The world of tomorrow. Well, that world of tomorrow, that's now. Electricity is doing more in our homes than they could ever have imagined back in 1952. And some of it's pretty amazing. We can take these solar cells that are only half a micron thick. We can actually laminate them onto a piece of cloth. And as a result, you can have a flexible cloth solar cell. And if you think that's hard to believe, it gets even wilder. From this old house, this is Clear Story. Your home in a new light. I'm Kevin O'Connor. A lot has changed when it comes to powering our homes. In 1930, around 70% of houses in the U.S. had some level of electric power. It was used to run things like lights, fans, and radios. Fast forward to now, and 25% of homes in this country are powered entirely by electricity. That's all of the appliances, the heating and cooling, everything. And sure, a lot of the things we're going to talk about would be mind-blowing to someone from the 1930s. But some of them would be surprising to a person from just 20 years ago. So what are we using electricity for today? Well, we sat down with Heath Eastman, our This Old House electrician, to find out. Heath is out installing electrical service and new technology all of the time. He's got his finger on the pulse of any and everything new his customers want. I had to ask him about the most important use of electricity, at least in my house. Wi-Fi internet. And I'm guessing I'm not alone here. When the power goes out, the only thing anyone seems to care about is the Wi-Fi. Oh, that's the big one. So a lot of the systems now, besides having your phone, your laptop, tablet, anything else that wants to run on the Wi-Fi network, a lot of your home systems are starting to run on those too. So people have specific devices that they can use voice control to turn things on, light switches, different devices that are all enabled, and almost all of them are connected with a Wi-Fi network. So that's the biggest thing we want to make sure we put in a new house is we want to have a really, really strong Wi-Fi backbone in that house. Have you ever worked on a house where you have not had a conversation with the homeowners about Wi-Fi? Not recently. (laughs) (laughs) I can't think of it. It's always, always a concern. Especially if they have teenagers. Trust me, I know. What started out as maybe one home computer and a few cell phones has grown to an entire house that's on Wi-Fi. Heating systems, appliances, locks, even doorbells. And the list goes on. But how about basic, good old-fashioned things like lighting? Today, everything's LED. Yeah. So in a case where you would have had three or four lighting breakers circuits running a house or a particular area of a house, you're using less than one. I mean, you put the one in, but it's using no power if you do everything LED now. Right. Yeah, it's a big change. And so just to put that in perspective, if you had a couple floor lamps and a couple ceiling lamps 
and they should have been running 60-watt light bulbs. And sure. Most of us put in a 100-watt light bulb when we shouldn't have. <laughs> no, it doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about four, five, eight hundred watts of lighting coming from those fixtures. Exactly. If I were to pull all those 60 and 75-watt bulbs out and replace them with LEDs, my 600, 700-watt usage goes down to what? 120, 150. For all of them. Yeah. Total. Yeah. So magnitudes of less energy. Huge difference. We're not talking, you know, 10 or 20%. It's a big drop. Now, if you listened to our episode on building science, you know that today's new homes are much more energy efficient for a lot of reasons, including the LED light bulbs Heath mentioned. And that got me thinking about modern appliances. How much power can we save there? A lot. So something that used to draw a lot of power 20 years ago is using 20, 30, 40% less for the same version of that now. So central air conditioning systems that used to draw a lot in a home, refrigeration equipment, those type of things are drawing much less power and still doing the same output. So how can you find out how much electricity those new appliances are actually drawing? Well, Heath installs systems that allow you to monitor energy use. When we install these, we'll typically install them in the panel. That way we can get the sense of everything in the system. What a lot of them can actually do now is they can actually tell you what the device is without you having to program it. So it will know whether it's a garage door opener, a refrigerator, a light fixture. It tends to know that on its own with reasonable accuracy. You can correct a few and then you can label them what they are. But it will tell you what that device is, what it's using for power, and gives you a reading the whole time. Why do you think people are asking for that? What is knowing what uses how much power? What does that do for them? It's crazy how much you don't realize what's on at any given point <laughs> and what's what's costing you money that you're not using. Uh, it's great to see that because you'll see, well, why is this running? Why is my bill so high? Why am I using this? Oh, the surge strip is actually drawing with all these things plugged in a couple of amps. Let's turn this off. We're not using this. Yeah. Um, standby mode on AV equipment draws a lot of power. If you don't need it, if you're going away, turn it off. The other advantage and some of the potential of it is they're talking about having third-party control of items, so you'll be able to kind of talk to other smart devices through the system, and it can troubleshoot for you. So if something draws X all the time, well, now it's drawing more or less. We can tell that there's a problem, and it can alert you and say, hey, this isn't doing what it normally does. You may want to take a look at this. So it's almost like a preventative maintenance item as well. What other, other things are they asking you to do these days? So a lot of the things we're trying to do now are with technology changing, mobile devices, you know, more Wi-Fi connected devices coming online, USB receptacles, which I'm sure you've seen quite a bit of, just for charging stations, it makes things a lot easier. You still get your conventional receptacles, but a place to plug in your phones, your tablets, things of that nature. Electric vehicle chargers. You know, five years ago, you did a few. Now, almost every new construction job we're doing, we're putting in preparation for that. And what's the prep? We'll typically run a larger... 30 to 50 amp circuit, 240 volt in a house, over into the garage or wherever it's going to go and put that into a box even if they don't have a charger yet or they're not sure they have a vehicle yet. But that way it's there and it's ready down the road if they do get one. And a lot of people around are. And it just makes it much easier. It's a faster turnaround time for charging versus just plugging into a regular wall receptacle. So that's a taste of what an electrician is putting in homes right now. But what does Heath see when he looks into his crystal ball? You know what I've always thought about in the past few years, and I'm shocked I haven't seen it yet, and maybe it's out there I just haven't noticed it, with all the electric vehicles becoming more and more popular, we have to charge them by plugging in. With our phones and a lot of our devices, we can charge them wirelessly. Huh. I'm shocked that I haven't seen any type of in-floor induction system or a mat or anything else or the potential for things being built into the infrastructure of parking garages where it's induction charging for the vehicles, no longer plugging in. You simply pull up 
able to activate a switch to engage the induction and then drive off. It makes sense because you know where the car is going to be parked all night. Exactly. I'm taking it. I got a smart guy from MIT coming in a little later. I'm going to whisper that idea to him as if it was my own Heath. And I want 25%. Oh, you got it. I'll take 75. (laughs) 25. You're easy. (laughs) Sounds like a good idea, right? You know, yes, it's wireless, and you don't have to park your car accurately. Yes, it's wireless, and you charge just as fast as if you had plugged in. And I think that's what's making this a winner. And I guess that means Heath and I are the losers. We cut the cords after the break. So, we've already got wireless phones, wireless appliances, and wireless internet. Why not wireless electricity? We sent a producer over to a company that's doing just that. I'm Alex Grusin. I'm the CEO of Whitricity. And Whitricity was founded around a really simple idea, which was let's get rid of the last cord in our lives, the power cord. And so our technology delivers wireless power, wireless electricity. You can probably imagine hundreds of ways to use this technology. But that idea that Heath had, that one is coming to your driveway sooner than you might think. We're well into it. I think we're about two years from broad deployment. In fact, I know we're two years from broad deployment. So what would wireless car charging look like? So instead of a box on the wall that would have a coiled cable around it that you take and plug to your car, the box on the wall for us runs power to a pad that's in the parking spot. Literally, you just drive into the same parking spot, turn off the car, shut your door, walk away, and the car will just charge. The pad on the ground is maybe about a yard wide. It's a bigger pizza box. On the car, there's a receiver that's built in by the automaker. So from the grid to the battery of the car, it is just as efficient as if you had plugged in. And that usually blows people's minds because they're tied to this idea of sort of these inefficient, cheap consumer electronics devices. But the the sort of the unique thing that we developed was how do you move that power at a distance as efficiently as if you had plugged in? And that's what we've achieved. So that means that you're not wasting any power relative to plugging in. It also means that you're charging as fast as if you were plugging in. Whitricity's technology uses magnetic resonance. Yeah, I know. What is that? Well, basically, a transmitter coil puts out an oscillating magnetic field, sort of like singing a particular note. If you make a receiver that is resonant with that field, or tuned to hear the same particular note, you can send electricity between them without a wire. The bigger the transmitter coil, the further it can travel. But forget all that. When you see it with your own eyes... It just makes sense. We have this demonstration that we use here that just illustrates it, that unlike that electric toothbrush that needs to be perfectly aligned, I can actually move power with position flexibility up, down, left, right. Alex is moving a plastic disc the size of a drink coaster around a small transmitter on the table. Embedded in the disc is a circle of LEDs. There's like a three-dimensional volume in which 
the power can efficiently move. In this case, I'm lighting up LEDs, but I could be charging a car or charging a phone or a notebook computer. That's really powerful. Now, what, one other thing you'll notice is that as I take it you know, far away, the lights don't light up anymore, right? So people have often said, well, I want you to charge the phone in my pocket five feet away. You know, if I were to do that, we would be just scattering energy all through the room and it wouldn't be efficient and you couldn't move very much power. You'd be wasting it, you'd be hugely inefficient and you just couldn't get much power uh, to something that's at a distance. So what we focus on is in this 3D volume, we're moving the level of power that you would expect, like as if you had plugged in, right, with no compromises. And it's very efficient. There's no wasted energy. Alex Grusin grabs the wireless transmitter and puts it up to his back, then puts the plastic receiver with the LEDs on his stomach, and it lights up. Here it's going through my body, right? So we have customers who have done work in implantable medical devices. So you can imagine just charging something instead of having some charging leads, you know, coming out through your skin that could get infected, whatever. You could have implanted medical devices, things like heart pumps, things like neurostimulators for pain management that could be permanently in your body and could just be easily recharged from a pad. Maybe they even just slept on. You heard that right. Even your bed could be a wireless charger. So what about the rest of your house? Since we go through materials, we could embed it in furniture, not have to think about this idea of like, I'm putting it on a pad. Just like the power I showed it going through my body, it can certainly go through wood, stone, glass, you know, concrete, whatever. And so you could be building it into a phone, you could be putting it in a case. And the idea is I just throw it down and it just starts charging and my desk is uncluttered, there's no pads, there's nothing to worry about. So that's really cool. But let's talk money. I mean, how much more is it going to cost to get an electric car that can charge wirelessly? So our goal for wireless charging is that when you're at the point of purchase of a vehicle, it should be about the same choice as saying, I want, you know, the uh, in-car entertainment system for the back seats for the kids, or do I want to go to those 20-inch wheels? You know, when we're at that level of price option, then I think it just takes off. It's kind of hard to beat the user experience. To any technology that goes wireless doesn't go back. Easy always wins. And it's up to us from a science and engineering technology development point of view to make it small, make it cheap, make it practical. And that's the path we're on. So if the future of electricity in our homes is wireless, where's the power going to come from? If I have a capability somehow to collect all the sunlight that Earth gives us in one hour, it turns out I would collect all the energy I need to run the entire planet for one year. More in a minute. Nanotechnology permeates everything that you do. You don't really think of it that way, but anytime you smell a cup of coffee, you're smelling molecules that left a cup of coffee and reached your nose, right? Those molecules are one nanometer in size. And those are the objects that you're smelling that reach your nose, which means 
your nose is filled with nanoscale detectors, right? You are designed to experience nanoscale. You just don't think of it that way. So you're thinking, what does this have to do with electricity? Well, where we get our electricity from is also changing. When we talked to Heath Eastman, he told us he's seen a lot more solar installations these days. That got us thinking about the future of solar in the home. And that led us to Vladimir Bulovich, a professor of electrical engineering at MIT and the founding director of MIT Nano. We do many things in MIT Nano. I, you know, there are 2,000 researchers and there are 2,000 projects. Wow. Very specifically, is different ways of making new renewable energy sources sure. that would give us uh, renewable electricity. And they are the most straightforward technology one can exemplify that with is solar technology. Solar cells of today are made of silicon, and silicon is abundant. And uh, you can see it anytime you see sand, that silicon oxide typically. It can be converted into silicon wafers, and then those silicon wafers can be tiled to make large area coverage of silicon that can absorb the light because it's dark, which means it absorbs light. And the absorbed light can generate excited electrons. And those excited electrons can rush out of the wires that are connected to those chunks of silicon and give you electricity. That's how we capture electricity from sunlight. True. Uh, so uh, there are nuances that I kind of skipped, but uh, I'm not a nuance guy. You're going you're <laughs> to find out very well, quickly. <laughs> well, you know, at the end of the day, the energy cannot be created or destroyed. If the energy comes to you in the form of sunlight, photons, you can give that energy, convert it into electrical current, and that is all that's really happening inside a solar cell. If I have voltage coming out of this wafer, if I attach a light bulb to it. I can have that voltage drive current through the light bulb and cause the light bulb to turn on. So it's complicated, but I basically get it. And if we put that silicon wafer up on a roof where it can see the sun, we get essentially that equation. And we generate small amounts of electricity over large square footage, and we have solar electricity. That's right. And you do it one photon at a time and one electron excited at a time, but... When you add them over large areas, you can generate hundreds of watts of power per yard squared off a solar cell. The most efficient solar panels today can only convert a bit over 20% of the sun's energy to electricity. So I was imagining Professor Bulovich and his team were working on getting that number up, <laughs> but no. More efficiency sometimes comes with more complexity. Mm -hmm. And anytime you need to introduce another synthetic step in making your device, you're adding to the cost. And that's really where the challenge is. The challenge is the scale. Sure, it'd be great to capture more of the sun's energy and convert it to electricity, but that's really expensive. So the real push is to get the cost down so more people can afford the technology. A significant amount of cost to the solar installation is actually not in a solar cell anymore. It's in the method by which we install it. Anywhere from a half to two-thirds of the cost is not the panel itself. It's a man on a roof screwing it to the roof. And aluminum to fasten it to the roof or maybe a reinforcement of the roof. If you're doing it in a field, you need to pour concrete slabs in which aluminum posts will be inserted. All these are extra costs that dramatically increase the cost of solar. If solar panels were free, two-thirds of the cost will still be there because <laughs> you need to go ahead and deploy them. 
All right, so how can you make solar panels cheap and simple to install? Today's silicon panels are about uh, the thickness of one and a half human hairs, about 150 microns in That's thickness. That's it, huh? That's it. However, they're very brittle. They are thin ceramic sheets that if you bend them a little bit, they'll crack. And the moment they crack, they stop operating. So to make the silicon panels stronger, they're covered with glass to keep them from bending. But in doing that, we dramatically increase the weight. It causes a typical solar panel that's maybe four by six feet in size. A typical panel like that weighs now 50 pounds. Right. Silicon would be on the scale of about maybe four or five percent of the weight. Hmm. 95% plus is the glass. So the engine is tiny. Yeah. But the vehicle is huge. That's right. Huh. That's a really good way to put it. You can use that. (laughs) Thank you. So how do you make something that's very thin, that isn't brittle, but is actually flexible? Enter nanotechnology. You can make a solar panel out of organic molecules that would be much thinner than the silicon we use now. If the silicon solar cell is 150% the thickness of a human hair, an organic one could be 0.5%. The thinner it is, the more flexible it can be. You can bend a solar cell that is that thin, and the solar cell would not even know that it's being bent. And the way to understand that is to think of us standing on planet Earth. We are so short compared to the curvature that we don't even know that the Earth is truly curved. Same thing for extremely thin cells. If you make them extremely thin, you can bend them macroscopically. They don't know they're bent. They they had no idea. They don't experience any stress or strain significantly between those molecules. Professor Bulovich and his team are trying to figure out which organic molecules will work best. Chances are that these panels will be something like 11 or 12 percent efficient. But the gains in flexibility will give them durability, which means that making them would be a lot easier. We'll make a soup of one material, a soup of another organic material. We'll squeegee it on as extremely thin films. And just like printing newspaper, we should be able to print solar cells. Which means that they'll be flexible, light, easy to install, easy to deploy, easy to get to scale. And the size of, let's say, your carpet in your room. And it would weigh 10 pounds or so. So rather than having to wire multiple panels on your roof, you'll now just be able to unroll, unfurl, and staple to your roof a blanket. Hmm. That would be your solar cell. Uh, There'll be just a single set of wires coming out with a plug. So it's feasible this could be sold at Home Depot without ever needing an electrician to really do an installation for you. This could be just a thing that you go ahead and get for yourself. But why even mess with a blanket? Why not just make the roof itself out of solar materials? It could serve the dual purpose, that is so-called building integrated photovoltaics. The one challenge with building integrated photovoltaics is that imagine your roof is leaking for some reason and it has built-in solar cells in it. Who'd you call to repair your roof? The electrician (laughs) or the roofer? Exactly. (laughs) I'm calling you, pal. (laughs) You got me into this mess. (laughs) Ah, Well, I would recommend separating the two, right? And so peel off your blanket of solar cells and then fix your roof if that's what you want to do. And your roof isn't the only place in your house where this new technology could be used. Professor Bulovich and his team have developed organic solar cells that are fully transparent. If you're building a home, you often are fond of having light come into your home. Sure. Which means you have windows. Correct. Well, why don't I put these solar cells, invisible solar cells, on your windows? Huh. 
Because it turns out since they absorb infrared light, they will also stop your home from being heated by that infrared light. So this is similar to some of the coatings we have on windows now. Actually, it's very similar functionally from what the present low-E coatings do, which is stop the infrared light from coming through. But what we would do is take that infrared light and actually convert it to electricity. Huh. And there are millions of windows being made every day and installed every day that already are designed to absorb infrared light. Yes. They just haven't met you as a guy who can take all that absorbed infrared light and turn it into electricity. Well, they're just using materials that are not often thought of being used as electrical materials. So our windows can be completely clear. We can let in all the light that we want and power our homes. Absolutely. Come on, man. This gets me so excited, but I want it now. What is holding us back? (laughs) What is holding us back? You know, the scale of things is humongous, and the amount of energy needed to run the planet of 7 billion people is humongous. So it takes a lot of will to go ahead and direct a particular way of doing a particular technology. It also then is entirely driven by the profitability of particular enterprise. And we are talking about building an enterprise that runs the entire planet. That takes time. It's exciting to see how much more solar power we'll be able to do for your home. And making this solar nanotechnology cheaper also means that a lot more people who aren't connected to power grids right now could have access to electricity in the future. The thing that often strikes me is that if you look around the planet, there are about 2 billion people without access to any electricity. And for them, well, the well-being of their daily existence directly correlates to the amount of energy they can use. That's been proven. United Nations has a so-called human development index and tells you how well you're off living in a particular country. If you have lights at night, you can read and continue to be productive. If you have cold conditions and you can warm it up, you're less likely to get sick. I can imagine it has a dramatic impact on people. There's a direct correlation between a per capita electricity consumption and the well-being of an individual living in a country. Here, light, heat, and energy to help with the housework come in by wire. All in a man's lifetime, electric power has changed the world. Sounds a little silly, doesn't it? Understandable, though. I mean, if you were born on a farm at the turn of the 20th century, if you lived through the 1920s or 30s, when most homes had few or no electrical devices, you could understand why in the 1950s you think electricity was miraculous, that it actually changed the world. But today, can we still get excited about the idea of electricity? Well, I can. I mean, think about it. Unlike any other sources of power, electricity can do it all. It can drive motors, pumps, circuits, and all the things attached to them. It can deliver heating and cooling, and of course, light. We're dependent on it, but we're also used to it. So maybe that's why we're not amazed by it. But consider what you just heard and think what our grandkids might experience. An endless and renewable source of power, accessible to everyone, affordably, gathered on every surface by amazing materials, thinner than human hair, and delivered not by a wire, but by equally amazing magnetic fields. That's a future 
I think we can all get excited about. Well, almost everybody. Maybe not our electrician, Heath Eastman. I mean, what's he going to do if wireless electricity takes off? I'll be out of a job if it does. (laughs) (laughs) You won't need me. (laughs) Drop us an email at clearstory at thisoldhouse.com to let us know what you think of this episode and if there's anything you want us to explore. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Clear Story and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Clear Story was produced by Rococo Punch for This Old House. Production support from Catherine Fenelosa, Chris Ermides, and Sarah Chase. And special thanks to our guests, Heath Eastman, Alex Gruzin, and Professor Vladimir Bulovich. How'd I do? Do I get out of the class for the semester with a C or better? I, I'd say you aced it. Aced it. Excellent questions. Awesome. Thank you, sir. My, my first credit from MIT. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Professor. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs>